shocking statistic to kick off this week's edition of the programme. Did you know that 80 billion plastic shampoo and conditioner bottles are thrown away every year? It's a number to boggle the mind, but for my guest this week, it was a call to action. Svante Holm is one of the two co-founders of Beauty Disrupted, the freshly officially certified B Corp beauty brand launched exactly one year ago today, June the 8th. Swede Svante, alongside Frenchman Alban Main, both quit tech careers to start a company that's challenging the norms of the beauty industry. They spent two years developing their own formulas and now offer a wide range of conscious beauty for all genders, designed in Stockholm and carefully crafted in the south of France. All the products, from hair care to body wash and shaving, come as luxuriously lathering solid bars and can be found at many of Europe's best beauty retailers. The bars are made with 100% renewable energy and contain nature's finest ingredients, including 100% organic fragrances from grass. The products are completely free of harsh ingredients and, of course, plastics, and each bar avoids the need for at least two of those 80 billion bottles. But it's not just about eco-credentials. It's also about being more broadly, demonstrably purposeful. Beauty Disrupted donates 20% of its profits to organisations that protect the planet and combat climate change. I have lots of questions to put to Svante, from the future of beauty to the importance of knowing which specific beach you source your algae from, what's in a lather, that's very important, and why saying no can power the right kind of growth. Plus, I'll inform you a little later how you can get involved too and do your bit to help clean up the world's oceans, all while ensuring you're remaining perfectly fragrant. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. Svante Holm, uh, one half of the founding team of Beauty Disrupted. Welcome to the programme. Let's start with some background. Give us the, the origin story. What's Beauty Disrupted? What's it all about? Beauty Disrupted, you know, both me and my amazing co-founder, Alba Main, we used to work in tech for many, many years. And we both wanted to do something more impactful. And we came across this shocking statistic that every year people throw away 80 billion plastic bottles of conditioner and shampoo. And when we read that 80 billion, we're like, well, maybe this, this is something we should look into because this doesn't make any sense. So we started purchasing all the non-plastic hair care products and beauty products that we could find from Sweden to New Zealand. But there was really nothing that we loved. There was a lot of green and kind of clean things, but nothing that felt luxurious or amazing to use. First, we didn't think we would be involved in this, but we're like, this could be done better. And we quit our tech careers and we really set off on making something that is not only green and clean, but also absolutely amazing to use, something that is desirable and that has the potential to change the beauty industry. So that's what we do. We do all our beauty products in solid bar format. We design in Stockholm and we create the products or we consciously craft our products in the south of France with the absolute best people down there. And we use 100% organic perfumes from grass. So we really try to make this a super luxurious experience that is also good for you as a consumer and good for the planet. So every product we do reduces the need for at least two plastic bottles. And we give back 20% to organizations that protect the planet and, and fight climate change. So it's something that feels extremely meaningful to do. 
Well, yeah. And let me ask you about that, because it is a bit of a, a mantra at the moment. Lots of businesses, even big established corporates, they talk a pretty good game, don't they, about being responsible, about addressing the challenges of the future, about trying to be more purposeful. But you guys are really doing it. Did, did that mean it was more tricky getting this business started? Did you meet any scepticism, cynicism from people who said, well, look, if it was this easy, why hasn't everybody done it? And what, you're going to give away 20% of your profits? Hold on, that's a fifth. What? Did you encounter that kind of scepticism initially? I think on the 20% part, I would say nearly everyone loves it, absolutely loves it. We've done two rounds of fundraising, and we had one or two investors who really questioned it. And why are we giving away so much? Is that really necessary? But that's, you know, we quit our long, we were 20 years in the tech space. We worked for companies like Apple and HP, you know, companies that we admired, and we quit that to do this. We're not just in this to do something small and, and non-meaningful. We want to do something big and impactful. So yeah, we're giving away 20%. We put that into all our statutes and so on so that it cannot be changed even if we're acquired one day. So that is really key to why we do this. Just like we don't use any harsh ingredients. We don't use any plastic. This is why we do it. So it's really dear to our hearts and we're not not changing that. Skepticism, I think... I think what we've seen is it's really hard for big companies, big established players to do this. It's hard for them to be authentic when they talk about a non-plastic product, when they have maybe a range of thousand different plastic bottles behind them. So I think that's an advantage that we have. We never use plastic, not in the back end, not nowhere. And we can authentically say that. And, and not so many brands in that space can do that. And does that present then a different kind of problem as you look to grow? I mean, clearly you're ambitious in terms not just of this sort of intentionality behind the products and the development of them, but presumably as a business, you want to grow, you want to find markets where there are lots of consumers hungry to go on this kind of journey. Does it make it more difficult then if you have to live by that commitment? Does it does it restrict you in some ways? Not really. It, it, it drove us a bit crazy initially when we did the formulations. We spent two years creating our formula and developing and testing and, and so on. And, and we did not take the easy route. We didn't use anything standard off the shelf. We built everything from scratch. We hooked up with a real life druid. I didn't even know that they still existed, but they do high up in the French Alps. We hooked up with a botanist in the Savoy who really taught us you know, how to use these natural ingredients and taught us the basics about making soaps and shampoos and so on. And then we we took that to the bigger, more, you know, the scalable players in the south of France. And they have this amazing know-how. But they were not used to us coming and with a lot of requirements on where the ingredients are exactly from. So the players that we work with, they also produce for the biggest luxury brands that you can possibly think of, the most prestigious ones. But they were not used to getting questions about, like, we're putting algae in our Ocean Magic line, for example. And... We wanted to know exactly where that algae comes from. And the suppliers would be like, well, we think it's from Europe, or it might be Asia. We're like, no, 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 no. We want to know what beach is it from? Can we have it from this particular beach in the Mediterranean or maybe from Normandy? That's what we want. And we challenged every single ingredient on that. And that nearly drove them crazy. They, they nearly kicked us out then. And, and then when we finally, you know, we found good solutions to most of these questions and then and then on top of that, we told them, and by the way, we want to make everything, everything with 100% renewable energy. And none of our partners had ever done that before. And they're like, you guys, you guys are a startup. You're small. We work with big established players. Why should we do this for you? But then we had these discussions for a few months. And then they came back and said, you know what? What you guys are requesting 
the big brands, they will request the same thing sooner or later. So they actually did change the energy supply for us. They, they got more, you know, we're still not perfect. We don't know exactly where every ingredient, we don't know the farmer behind every oil, for example. We want to know that, but we're not quite there. But I think that the beginning was tough. It took us a long time. We spent two years doing that. Yeah, and I find that process absolutely fascinating. Was that because you two were so passionate about it? Do you think that you couldn't presumably have found some sort of agent to go and meet these people and go and meet these people up in the mountains and ask these kind of questions? There was no alternative, right? You guys had to get your, well, I was going to say get your hands dirty, but probably get your hands clean in the process of doing this, correct? Because you you can't delegate that kind of attention to detail. No, and I think I think we were obsessed with details. I think, you know, I spent five years at Apple and I think if that's one learning I took with me from there was this obsession with details that when you take the product to the consumer, it should be a perfect experience. There should not be any compromises. And I think that's even more true for a brand that really wants to be green and clean. It's not enough for the consumer if you're only green and clean. Maybe for two or three percent of a consumer, yeah, that's enough. They they can live with a shampoo that's not great as long as it's green. But the other ninety-seven percent, they want to have an amazing experience. So it has to be perfect. It has to be as good or better than the best liquid alternatives. And and that's what we've been obsessing about. We've been testing and comparing for so long. And and I think that pays off. Like the feedback that we get now from the press and from retailers that we work with is is absolutely beautiful. And tell me something about that challenge, because I'm sure there will be people listening who'll say, look, I just don't see how you can, you know, how can you work up the right lather like you do with the best shampoo or conditioner or the best shower gels when you are dealing with a bar from a box? Was that, again, was it some alchemy you guys had to do or was it actually not that difficult? I mean, the actual process of managing to replicate that specific sensation, how much trial and error was involved? It was a lot. So on the lather specifically, we we now get the feedback from like the big beauty magazine that this is the most wonderful lather that they've ever seen. But that took us a long time and a lot like first we didn't have enough, then we had we had too much. We got feedback that this lather is like crazy. We went up and down, we were it took us a long time and the worst was probably the scent. There we really went all in on getting it exactly like we want. So we have three cents that we work with. All our products, they come in three cents. One is called the Amazonian Amour, which is, you know, for the rainforest, where we give money back to protect the rainforest, and which should smell, it should really transport you to the heart of the rainforest. Then there's another one called Alpine Glow, which obviously is here for the Alps and for the mountains and protect glaciers and, you know, make sure that obsessed skiers like myself have a future. And then and then there is the Ocean Magic Collection. And the ocean is, you know, obviously, so my... My co-founder, who's not here today, Alban, he's been a sailor his whole life, and he's very, very passionate about that, and he's allergic to plastic in the ocean, obviously. So when we created that one, we spent nine months just smelling different samples of ocean magic. And I grew up on the Swedish West Coast. I'm a Swede originally, and he grew up on the French coast. We had slightly different ideas of how an ocean smells. And, and I spent a lot of time on the med. So I was like, well, this is what it smells like. So we spent nine months just doing samples. And we always work with 100% organic fragrances from Grass. And the people down there, they warned us not to do that because it's really hard to get it right. It's one component on its own smells amazing. But when you start mixing them, they, they're kind of alive and they make unexpected things so they can really go bad. So it took us nine months to get that right. But then now it's, yeah, it, it takes you to the Mediterranean sunset on the island. So it's beautiful. But that took a long time. 
Talk to us a little bit about the plans for geography, because I know you, it's all, it's all happened pretty quickly. The brand was launched, what, just last summer? Is that right, I think? Um, you're in lots of top retailers in some of these markets that you've already mentioned or alluded to in Sweden, in France, of course. You're launching across, I think, the Dutch region more broadly. Has that happened at the pace you guys planned? What is the ambition for that? Because I guess there's a question about how mass market and how niche some of these things are. Well, what's the kind of the strategy in terms of that growth? story? I think from the beginning, we decided that we want to work with the absolute best beauty retailers, the ones who offer the best service with the most interesting assortment. We had one article, I should say that. We had one article in in Vogue, where Vogue France wrote a glowing article about us, and they said, our shampoo bar is for the hair of your dreams. And once we got that review, which is amazing, but once we got that, we had way more requests than we could possibly handle. And from retailers all across Europe, which is great. But we, in a very polite way, we turned down nearly all of them because, first of all, we couldn't handle it. But also because we just want to focus on the ones that we really think will give the optimal service to the consumer and who will treat our brand right and who will, you know, who are not obsessed with discounting. We, we don't want to end up there. So we, rather than making discounts, we want to give money back to the planet. So, yeah, we said no to many. We work with a few that we are really in love with and we're looking to expand in a very sensible way so that we can still provide a great service and I think it has worked like we wanted with one big exception that is really annoying but that has been the UK we think UK could be an amazing market for this but since Brexit a lot of the rules changed and that really impacted us there so that I think we have applied five times for the VAT uh, you know, just to get the VAT number for UK. And every time I get a message back, uh, sorry, you're talking to the wrong guys, or, you know, we have closed down your application because you missed this part. So we struggled there, but everything else, I think, has worked out as we planned. Well, I feel, I, I don't know, I feel sort of strangely somehow almost personally responsible, uh, which is really, that's terrible. And hopefully that can be addressed because I guess this is a really interesting moment, isn't it? I would say even if you'd launched this business, what, just five years ago even, the sort of narrative around not just sustainability and being climate aware and trying to be more responsible with your purchases, it's changed so much. And and this idea now about intentionality and purposefulness of products has moved on, it seems to me, well, I wonder, has it moved on even since you launched the business? There seems to be a different sort of appetite, not just to have the conversation, but to make buying decisions predicated upon that. Do you, do you feel the pace of change is that rapid? Well, I think we see it when we speak to investors. If I compare the second round to the first round, it's, yeah, there's a difference there. People are much more focused on all the sustainability goals and so on. So that's one big change. I think in terms of consumers, I think COVID had a big impact on many consumers that maybe they slowed down, they had more time to research, they started looking more at what are the ingredients inside a product. Uh, so yeah, I think that had a, a fairly big impact on people and how they shop. And, and all that has, I think, played to our advantage. So, yes. And what do you think that the sort of, I, I don't know, I'm interested in the logical conclusion of this. Is it something where, I don't know, how, how big can the ambition be? Do you think it's plausible to say, well, look, we are proving that you can make not just a good product, but you can make a great product that is packaged in this way and that is sustainable and is responsibly made from first to last. There's no reason why all goods in this sector can't be manufactured, created, consumed in the same way. Or is that kind of jumping way too far forwards in your view? 
No, you know, if, if you take our name, Beauty Disrupted, that's exactly what we want to achieve. We went in with big ambitions. We quit our careers to do this. We're not in this to make something small. We want to change that space. We think it's, you know, like I said, people throw away 80 billion plastic bottles of shampoo and conditioner. There's got to be a better way to do this. And I think once you see that, whoa, this can be wonderful to use, people will start to make that change. And we see that already now, you know, the, the liquid space in plastic bottles is obviously much, much bigger than the bar space. But it's kind of flat. It's not growing. Maybe it's growing at 2% year over year, whereas the bar space is growing at more than 100% year over year. Our ambition is similar to what I think Tesla did so wonderfully well. Then they kind of forced the car industry to change much faster than it ever would have done if Tesla hadn't come out. I mean, Tesla, they were not the first with electric cars, but they were the first to make really, really, really desirable electric cars that were fast, sexy, fun to drive, all of that, so that people were willing to change. And that's what we want to do here. It's not just green and clean. It also has to be amazing to use. More from Svante on Beauty Disrupted's mission in a moment. First, though, here's Monocle's business editor, David Hadari, with the Entrepreneur's News. Hello, David. Hello, Tom. Um, where should we start? Well, I think a good place to start would be our June edition, which contains our mobility special, and that's focused on transport in all its forms. And while we've looked at some much larger businesses, one of my favourite stories in the issue is about the Port Townsend Shipwrights Cooperative, which is a boat repair shop based in Washington State. They've been around for more than four decades, and they've earned a reputation as the West Coast's best place for repairing and maintaining heritage vessels. That's older vessels to you and me. And you can find out more about that and all of our other mobility stories in Monocle's June edition, which is on shelves now. Uh, A wise purchase. What else have you got for us? So, yeah, you'll have to catch June's edition quite quickly, as pretty soon our summer edition hits shelves as well. And that takes in July and August. One of the stories in that issue that will appeal most to the entrepreneurs out there is about Chiringuitos, which are these small beach bars across Spain. But for the purposes of this story, we'll be looking at Formentera in the Balearics and how the island's small business owners are facing pressure from private equity, property speculators and increasing government regulation. And that's in the summer edition. And every page is kissed with sunlight. Uh, You have been looking, of course, though, without the world of Monocle for some other stories that have caught your eye, David, for us? Of course, yeah. So one thing that I and all of our colleagues have been watching with uh, bated breath have been attempts to start rebuilding parts of Ukraine. And that's something we're going to be staying with in the coming months. There's a conference to rebuild Ukraine that will be taking place in Switzerland in July, which at least one of our colleagues will attend. And it seems that Ukraine's entrepreneurs can expect some much-needed wins pretty soon. There's a competition called Empowering Future Entrepreneurial Ukraine. And despite that being a mouthful, it's a very worthy cause. And it will be funded by business leaders in Finland, Estonia and Ukraine. And they've, between them, selected 14 Ukrainian startups to fund across the country's health, agriculture, infrastructure and defence industries. That is a great story, David. Can people head online to find out more? Yes, they can. If they head to ufincubator.com, they should be able to find out more about that. Although I think some of the winners may have already been announced, but more as we have it. David, thank you for bringing us up to speed with some entrepreneurs news. That's Monocle's business editor, David Hadari. Let's jump back into our chat, though, now with Svante from Beauty Disrupted.
Svante Holm, talk to me about what the best labels for the products are. You've talked about the specific partners you wanted to work with, certainly on the retail side and being within that luxury space, a particular kind of quality, a particular premium approach, if you like. Is it important to you? What is it just a semantic argument about whether this is a, a luxury product? It's made with great care. It's great to use. In that sense, it's luxurious. Are those labels important? Or again, is that part of being disruptive? It's like, look, it doesn't matter what you call it. We're just interested in in what it does. Well, I think if we only say luxury and people start thinking about traditional luxury brands, well, that that's not what we want to be. We want to be much more inclusive rather than excluding people. We make our products for all genders and our sense of all genders, our boxes that they appeal to, to all genders. So I think we take a more modern approach to that. I would call it more sustainable luxury. Sustainable luxury with a very strong purpose. That's, that's what we do. To explain it in a very short way, there was a Swedish magazine called uh, Scandinavian Mind. Their heading about us was, no plastic, still fantastic. <laughs> and I think that really represents what we're about. That's nice. And that's poetry, as I understand it. Uh, Nice little rhyme. Tell me a bit about partnerships. Obviously, you mentioned these retail outlets. Presumably, you have to be very collaborative when you set such ambitions in terms of the way you're sourcing materials, the way you're then developing, delivering your products, and these these broader points about renewable energy that goes in, being 100% renewable and so forth. Do you find that there are specific areas where there just isn't good enough cooperation. I mean, it sounds like it's not worked great with the UK getting on board in terms of facilitating a good business to bring good products to hungry consumers. That's a a bit of a black mark against the UK, again, as a post-Brexit thing. But more broadly, how do collaborations work? Do they work well enough? Are there particular people, stakeholders, whatever you want to call them, who aren't good enough at working with you guys and, and being receptive and trying to create an environment that makes it easier to do business and do this kind of business? I think we've been super fortunate in meeting up with absolutely amazing people from our investors who have introduced us to many of the right people, to our partners down in the south of France, who it took a little time to get them fully on board with what we were doing. But once they were on board, they really got it. And they're, you know, we're still a small player, but their CEOs are in very regular contact with us because, you know, they know that we're on on the forefront of this. And they they know that this is where the business is heading. You know, my co-founder is French and he has this amazing relationship with the guys down there. And that helps us a lot too. So, and I think on the retail side, I think we keep meeting these people who want to do something new and different and, and really good for people and planet. And there are some people who are more passionate about it and some people who are less. But on average, they want to help us win. So we get, we get amazing placements within the store that maybe we should never get. If we had plastic bottles in our lineup, we would never, ever, ever get that. But they give it to us because they think this is the right thing to do. So we get this amazing support from, from wonderful people, from Japan to Stockholm and Ibiza and everywhere in between. And that's just a fun journey to be on. So tell me then, what would you like to see next? We talk a little bit about geography, about ambition. You've been very clear that you guys set out, as you said, to be disruptive industry-wide. So in that sense, the ambitions, well, I guess it's the the old truism that the only limit is the scale of that ambition almost. But in the shorter term, if we look, I don't know, just a couple of years out, what does real progress for you look like? Is it about 
particular markets? Is it about a certain story of scale? Is it about just ensuring that every one of those testimonials you get, whether from the consumer side or from retailers or partners or press, that they're all singing from the same hymn sheet and it's of great enthusiasm? What does success over a shortish kind of timeline, what does that look like for you? I think on the press side, I think we're already on a, on a very good trajectory. On the retail side, we are on a good trajectory, but we we need to expand geographically. And I've, like I mentioned, I think UK would be a very high priority there. But also the US, I think the if you think about the US West Coast, some of the bigger cities, the potential there I think is is enormous and we're not there. And everything we do is is done in English and it's kind of ironic that the two markets we're not in right now is the UK and the US. So you know, we're far from perfect. We need to get in there. We need to do that. I think fairly quickly, but we also need to do it with great quality and care and have the right partners on board in those markets. To me, that's a pretty big thing. And of course, we're launching new products in different segments and so on. But I think what's more important than that is that we make the whole bar space easier to use for the consumer. So now we have these products that people absolutely love, but some of them come back and say, you know, I love your products, but how do I store it in the shower? For some people, this is an issue. Like, in some cases, you know, depending on how your shower looks like, it's not an issue. But in some cases, they have nowhere to really put the bars. Bars are better than plastic bottles in a million different ways. But if you leave the bar in water, it's not as good as a plastic bottle. It will melt away. So you need to store it in a dry way. We're working on making that easier for the consumer. And also, like, we have, I think, 24 different bars today. So if you put a handful of them in your bathroom and you start mixing them around a bit, after a while, it's really hard for you to remember huh, which one was my body bar and which one was my conditioner or my shaving bar or whatever. So we're working on that as well to make it just easier so that it's more convenient than the plastic bottle as well. So when we solve that and we're not that far away of doing that, then I think that's a big step forward as well. Yeah, that'd be it's exciting when businesses are in this still relatively young and there's so much change and it happens so quickly. It's it's an exciting ride. What yeah. about in a few years' time, down the track? I mean, I, I kind of always ask people that I talk to on this program this question, and it seems a bit of a cliche, but I think it's important because how people look in the longer term, I think, is really instructive, maybe for people who want to try starting their own business or are looking to scale up perhaps at a particular time or crack new markets. What is your longer term vision? Presumably you need to have an eye on that. Do you try and stop yourself looking, I don't know, 10 years down the track? Or do you think you need to have half an eye so that you make good strategic decisions even on the day to day? I definitely think you need to think about the long term. We definitely make long term decisions. I think in everything we do, we think every single decision we make, we think about the long term. I think we say no to a lot of opportunities because they don't fit the long-term view. So we, we don't take the shortcuts. We really think long-term. Is this great for consumer? Is this the right partner? Is this good for the brand long-term? We're here to build something huge longer-term. We have patience. We're doing something big. So yeah, we need to think about long-term for sure. I think there's a good likelihood that a bigger brand will one day acquire us, but they need to be a very good fit for the brand and they need to commit to never, you know, start using plastic or harsh ingredients or stop giving the 20% to the planet. If they agree to those things and they're, you know, they seem like the right partner, that could be a, a way forward as well. Well, yeah. And just finally on that point, perhaps, because I talked to a few real innovators, other disruptors in, well, across all sorts of sectors and lots of the the best businesses, the smartest startups, 
They have, I guess it's a kind of a paradox, which is that if you were to be truly disruptive and completely successful and all of the big players adopted the kinds of principles that you're talking about in terms of responsible sourcing, cutting out plastic packaging and so forth, you could almost have a situation where if the ideal course were followed everybody would be doing it and you wouldn't almost need to exist anymore. I guess that's that would be fine, right? Because then the planet wins, the oceans win, the mountains win, the forests win. Or I, I don't know, is that not really paradoxical? Am I kind of getting my, am I getting my ideas too uh, confused? I, I love it. I've been thinking about the same thing. So if we, not just us, you know, if we and other companies like us, if we manage to change the giants, so that they stop using plastic and they start giving back, they stop animal testing, they go, they go with vegan ingredients and, and clean formulas. I would love that. Then we have really won. Then we have done what Tesla has done to the car industry. You know, they have managed to change it so much faster than it would have done on its own. Imagine if we could help doing that. I would be so proud. So yeah, oh, that's our dream. Svante Holm, co-founder of Beauty Disrupted. And you can learn more about Svante and Albon and the work they're engaged in. Head to beautydisrupted.com. And more good news, as I mentioned at the top of the show, since Svante and I spoke, the business is officially B Corp certified, smashing way past the required points marker indeed. And if that's not reason enough to celebrate, don't forget to mark the one-year anniversary. Beauty Disrupted's launched an ocean magic gift box with 100% of the revenues generated through to the end of today being donated to Sea Shepherd and their amazing work on behalf of the world's oceans. So get stuck in now and pick one up for yourself at the website. If you prefer a more analogue purchase, well, Svante was talking about finding the right retail partners. They've just added another, recently launching at Galerie Lafayette in France. That's all for the show. It was mixed and edited by Jack Dewars, a man who never gets into a lather. My thanks to him as ever. And thanks once again to Svante and all the Beauty Disrupted team. Listen again and find out more about the entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive at your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye. And thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. <laughs>